0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt podcast. In our Week in IndyCar show, we are looking forward to an awesome conversation with Graham Rahal. A little bit of controversy there to close the Acura Grand Prix of Long Beach. And then we're going to close with our good friend, Ricardo Juncos, owner of Juncos Racing, a dynamic presence on the road to Indy and in IndyCar. Coming out of Long Beach, you might hear it a little bit in my voice, dealing with a little something, a little hold a little throat chest i don't know so sorry for either the bassy or nasally or but nasally whatever it is going on apologize there but you know part of the fun of traveling spending time among thousands and thousands of strangers and you know sometimes you take on a little gift you didn't ask for definitely need to start off by saying thank you to so many really truly kind people racing fans those who've happened upon the podcast was stopped by just a really surprising number of awesome folks who said hello, mentioned they listened to whether it's the weekend in IndyCar or some of the other shows that we have, and just offered general love and appreciation, whether it was for myself, my wife, our cats, who knows, just really cool, and something that is never expected, and always a little bit of a surprise, knowing that I'm just a guy doing a thing that I enjoy. Uh, I'll tell you one thing about the, uh, the annual trip down to Long Beach is it's very much a social event as much as it is a motor racing event. Got down there on Wednesday, went and spent the majority of the day with our friends at All American Racers, saw Evie Gurney, Dan's wife, Justin Gurney, Dan's son, who runs AAR, and continued a documentary that my film partner and I, Travis Long, started recording last year. On Justin's efforts to build the stillborn 1968 Eagle Formula One car, so that was a blast. Also had Mazda stop by that day and pay tribute to the uh, to the big eagle and to the company. So that was a perfect, absolutely perfect start to the week. Thursday was packed, wall to wall. Went and spent about an hour and a half with 2002 Indy 500 starter and full season participant. George Mack, always been curious about George, never uh, never known him. Uh, my last year working in IndyCar was 2001, so when I, quote, retired and tried to move on to something different, which turned into this career in media, uh, that was actually the year before George came in. So sat with him for about 90 minutes at his auto repair shop, which is, I don't know, maybe a mile and a half, two miles from the Long Beach Circuit, so that will be an episode of my racing life and career due out here in the near future. Then also spent a good good time at the track, did a number of interviews with folks at Team Penske for a month of May feature I'm working on, and then closed the day with the annual Road Racing Drivers Club dinner at Long Beach. David Hobbs was the featured honoree, and that's just, (laughs) it's been one of my favorite evenings forever, Uh, ever since I went to my first one I think about eight years ago nine years ago whatever it was this is my first time going as a member though was actually inducted as an associate member of the rrdc and it's just ridiculous in terms of an honor i i cannot think of any that are higher at least in ones that i hold in high regard and esteem so that was amazing saw all manner of friends a little bit of a general racing reunion there between myself michael cannon who serves as santino ferrucci's engineer and my pal john ennick so yeah just great times with great friends and then we had packed friday saturday was the 27th annual racer party so that closed out that evening and yeah uh, i think as i mentioned in my little post race column by the time i got on that flight home sunday evening (laughs) i was a mess Uh, i was pretty much a walking zombie and snored like a fool i know that because i woke myself up snoring on the flight home uh so apologies to everyone else on that flight i think it was flight 503 uh regardless great weekend exhausting weekend but the best kind of exhausting and then we had a bunch of amazing content between rossi just proving he is truly extraordinary Uh, a a phenomenal strategy-based win by the action express racing team and imsa and then the imsa gto cars just the old old school stuff i mean here's (laughs) Here's something I figure is rather telling. I put together a a fair number of videos over the weekend. I don't know, five, six, whatever it was. I posted about a three-minute clip just standing with my phone filming the GTO field pulling away from uh, their grid to go out onto pit lane. That generated, I think, 125,000 views on Facebook alone. I mean, it was... 10 to 20 times as much traffic i think as anything else i posted end of day videos or you name it so that might be a good little suggestion that folks truly love themselves some vintage race cars wrapped in and around modern day racing stuff all right so let's get on to one little piece of fun business hopefully so in addition to our awesome every single day support that we get from cooper tires and the justice brothers we also have the incredibly fun stuff that our friends and partners at Toronto Motorsports happen to do. They've come up with a batch of all new Indy 500 stickers, and those stickers are also going to be available in t-shirt form here very, very soon. Actually, this entire little brand of Roger Work uh, sticker slash t-shirt cartoons will form the basis of their Indy 500 pop-up store, which is coming in May. I, I don't know if I was supposed to mention that or not, but regardless, all kinds of great stuff. Uh, 1911, Ray Haroon's Marmon Wasp, uh, Jimmy Clark's 1967 car, Mark Donohue's 72, AJ Foyt's 77, Coyote, Mario Andretti's 69, Bronner Hawk, his winner, Rick Mears, 1991, Penske winner, uh, 1963, and Parnelli Jones and Danny Sullivan's 1985 winner, as well. Those, I think that's a complete list, but regardless, check out TorontoMotorsports.com. Everything I just mentioned should be available now for purchase in sticker form and then in t shirt form here in the coming weeks. And then once provided, and hopefully you are at the Indy 500, I believe you're going to be able to buy those at the Toronto Motorsports pop up venue. Alright, with all that said, let's get going with our man, Graham Rayhall, followed by Ricardo Junco's, and then I will close the show with all of your questions. Should just mention there as well, you guys have been sending in a ton of questions for me of late. Thank you. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Um normally uh, I think my guests, my guests always are top billing number one feature, and it's just been really cool where Granted, I make my living as an IndyCar reporter and as the person who in theory is bringing you a lot of news about what's happening and being on the inside. Hasn't always translated into folks asking me questions on this show, but it seems like uh, in recent weeks, maybe in recent months, that connection is being made finally. So thanks for everyone who sent in a bunch of questions for me, and I will close the show with those here in about an hour. Graham Rahal, I don't know if you heard, there was apparently some kind of controversy related to someone at the end of the race. Have you heard about this? I haven't fully sniffed it out, but there's a rumor something might have happened towards the end of the Acura Grand Prix of Long Beach.
1: I'm I'm familiar. I'm definitely familiar with the case. Um, I'm just glad you said, you know, that specific race and not my entire career. So that was good. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar.
0: Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for spending some time with us here as I have told you, and it is genuine, it's not blowing smoke, you are just about the most popular person uh, who comes on a little week in IndyCar here, and we can tell by the amount of questions that have come in. Also, thank you for dealing with me while this little whatever cold or flu thing that I got uh-huh. has hit me, so I've got a little lozenge in my mouth, so if hey, I sound twangy... Hey, lovely travel. Hey, you know, uh, we got to watch out for them Californians, that's all I'm saying. Well, let's do this. Let's get the obvious thing out of the way. We've got a couple of questions here. I'm going to start off with my favorite question, possibly of the episode. This comes in from Alan Bandy. It says, Graham, what was worse, being the recipient of a tough penalty that took you off the podium or Sebastian Vettel's 1970s porn star mustache?
1: Huh, uh, for sure. For sure. The, the, you know, I didn't even look at Vettel, so I can't I can't. T- I know I had a bad one not too long ago, so I'm not going to say anything about that. But, yeah, I mean, the penalties. the penalty frustrating. Um there's there's no doubt. There's a lot of frustration involved in that one. Um, but, you know, I think, like, as I've gotten older, you've just realized, like, what are you going to do? Um, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's a controversial call. I think it sets IndyCar on a bad standard of having to now be consistent, um, which I don't think is going to be their strength. Uh, and... There, meaning Max and Ari. Um, and so I, I think that they've set a standard for themselves now that is going to be hard to live up to. Um, because I can tell you this year, and actually I kind of laugh about it because one of the guys who blocked me pretty darn good at CODA was Mr. Dixon. And I can, I can tell you this year, I've been blocked far worse than that without any calls or any, any help. Um, so now, you know, for sure, when these things happen in the future, uh, I will be making sure to to be made it make it known that you know that this has happened or that's happened and here's the severity of it it's not a he said he said she said a point, finger pointing exercise this is just it's our business it's our life we work hard we have a lot of money on the line with sponsors and everything else to go out there and to be able to finish third and get total the coverage they deserved at Long Beach was great um those, those few points would have moved me, you know, up uh, to sixth in points or fifth versus being in ninth. Uh, obviously very close, but still, you know, there's a lot on the line to make a, a controversial call like that. Uh, but, you know, that's that's life and you just got to move on. And as, as fuel to our fire, just like we did, you know, for Long Beach coming off of Barber. Barber was ours, period. You know, you make a, got a little, air mechanical air there um and next thing you know here we are so uh you know we we use that to fuel us as we went into long beach had a great weekend there and now we will use this misfortune to fuel us to the grand prix
0: going to combine a couple of questions here together graham gabe argenta says i hate to ask about the blocking call but where exactly are the stewards finding the fault Surely not the move to the right on the exit of turn eight. I can't see that as a, quote, reactionary move. Or is the fade back left as you got closer to turn nine? If it's the latter, well, I don't like it. That is in line with some prior cars that have been penalized in race control. Doug Cole says, maybe just a follow up, if Graham's ever gotten an explanation or uh, some sort of elaboration on the call from the officials, I'd be interested in hearing that.
1: We asked the officials. We went in to protest, and the response was, you might as well leave because we're not changing it. So that's pretty much that. And so what I understand is that they're saying that the first move was reactionary, of which I can prove time and time and time and time and time and time again through data. It was not reactionary. I've watched the video, and this is my thing. I was calm in my interview because I'm like, oh, you know, yeah, I blocked, you know, I need to look at it and whatever. I watched the video and after I watched it, I was more confident in my move than I was at the time that I made it. It was not reactionary. I came out of the exit of the corner. I kept a consistent, steady arc and I went to the right. I'm allowed to make that move. I am the leading car, which I can set my line to which I did. That is what they're trying to tell me. Was reactionary. Apparently,
0: IndyCar yes. has sent uh, either the police or someone after here. So yeah, keep there you not go. Too loud.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, you know it, it, that's what they say is reactionary. At the end of the day, though, as I keep saying, I mean, we could go on about it all day. The call was the call. Um, I think it was very favorable, and you know, in Mister Dixon's case, but that's that's life, um, you know. And we just need to move on, move on, and put our head forward and you know, and focus on the next event, really.
0: One other theme here, and you mentioned Dixon. I don't see this part. That doesn't mean I'm accurate, just mean, but clearly some others are wondering. Uh, Andrew Miller says, the call seemed out of character for the Kyle Novak, Ari Dyke Max Pappas regime. Are they afraid of Chip Ganassi and or Dixie? Vinnie Taibbi says, I've heard a lot of people say, that they feel like Dixon gets the benefit of the doubt from race control. Do you feel that's the case or just a tough call for them to make?
1: So, so look, here's the thing. I've been asked to stay out of this conversation. So I'm going to plead the fifth on my side. But I think that a lot of people would agree with the comment that was just made.
0: It's interesting. Um, And and, um, it's not a defense thing at all. I maybe, I don't know, maybe I need to pay closer attention, but. That's clear it clearly has a, appeared to a number of folks that they believe Dixie might be the uh, the one to get uh let off the hook or be given something that benefits him again maybe I haven't seen that but uh I can't make an educated comment either way other than it surprises me a little bit but again not saying I'm right or wrong well let's close on this I'll
1: just say I think consistency is an issue and we'll leave it at that
0: Let's close on this from Chris Hoffman, who says, this is for Graham. It isn't a question. I just wanted to say, I think the way you handled yourself after the penalty when NBCSN interviewed you was admirable. Uh, There you go. Uh, Have you heard similar things? And maybe that's counter to, as I wrote in my little uh, reflection piece today, a couple years ago, you might have let loose with both barrels, but you did seem to uh, let calmer, calmer emotions rule the day.
1: Well, one of the things I've tried to like really work on for myself of the last couple of years is, is to be a little more calm and collected and stuff when things do happen. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, here you are stuck, you know, in a bad position, you know, I'm seeing, uh, nobody had actually like really told me that the penalty was that something was happening until I saw Dixon, you know, put on the third place hat. Uh, you know, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? I mean, you know, we have a lot of sponsors that are out there. We had, you know, sponsors that had walked over to the podium and were ready to celebrate. Um, you know, what, what, what am I going to say? You know, you have to be pretty calculated in what you say and what you believe. Um, I, I'm also, I, you know, I don't ever mean to say anything that's, uh, you know, harmful to my sport. I mean, I, Uh, you know, Jay Fry is probably, you know, one of my favorite human beings on this planet. Uh, I love, I love what he does and, you know, I want to help him continue to grow the sport and everything else. So got to be a little bit careful in what you say and the drama that you, you know, that you generate. Um, was I upset? I, I was, yes, I was upset, but I also sat there and thought, you know what? I've had a lot of bad luck this year. Yeah. I had one good luck race. Okay. Coda. You know, we were going to finish seventh or eighth, and instead we finished fourth because of the yellow. We had good good luck there, but St. Pete, we're running sixth, get a flat tire, and we were strong at St. Pete. I was trying to work on passing Harvey, which was a a job. But let's just say, you know, that's going to be fifth, sixth place for us. Okay, you know, then you go to Coda, we get a lucky bounce, obviously, like I just said. But we were competitive. We we're running up front anyway, you know. And then you go to Barber where our team had everybody covered and we have, you know, electrical gremlins. So look, I'm like sitting here like fourth place. Thank God. Let's just get out of here. Yeah. You know, that, that, you know, by in, in theoreticals, which I get, we don't race in theoreticals. I'm well aware, but in theoreticals, that's four top fives in a row hell of a lot better than what we can say as a team over the last few years. So, you know what? I was just kind of in the position. I'm like, Hey, you know what? Good, good solid day. Let's just move on with life. And, you know, I'll worry about that stuff when I worry about it. Um, you know, you just got to be pretty smart about what you say and, uh you know, really just let peers and, you know, dad and everybody else go fight the fight. I mean, I didn't even go in to see the, the stewards. I just did my thing and, and moved on, you know. But, uh yeah, I mean, I've tried over the last few years just to be a little more calm and collected over things. And, uh you know, hopefully – hopefully it's better. I mean, I know our sponsors appreciate it and everything else. So hopefully it's better.
0: going to bounce around to a variety of questions. Got some technical ones coming, some sponsor or livery ones coming. I like this one from Ryan Hart. He says, how is your wife Courtney's retirement affecting you this season, either mentally or physically? He says, it seems that uh, not trying to keep up with two crazy schedules might relieve some stress and also provide more time to train. Mm-hmm. Are some of the results of Courtney's retirement uh, that we're seeing in the results you've had this year on track, is there anything related or due to that?
1: There's no doubt it's helped me. Um, there's no doubt. In my No doubt. I mean, you know, for me to be able to be at every race weekend and to have her there just means I don't really have to pay attention to what goes on, you know, in the other world. And, and while, you know, obviously I pay attention to see how my, my sister-in-law and and john everybody doing it's not i don't need to like get out of the car and be like oh my gosh is my wife okay how to run go is she in one piece is we didn't have any explosions you know all that sort of stuff that you used to worry about also just the time frame switches all the time i mean it used to be you know i'd be on the east coast she'd be on the west and you know of course all of us like to you know say goodnight to our wives before you know the day's all over and finish off that way and you know, that created a major problem. I mean, just like from a time perspective, it was always difficult, but more than anything, just the peace of mind, have her there with me has been awesome, you know, to, to go back to the boss of the hotel or whatever, and to have that support, you know, means the world to me. And, uh, there is no doubt that it is that it has benefited uh, myself, you know, I, the less travel. I mean, I've still traveled way too much this year, but you know, I I've, I've lost like 16 pounds and, I've been able to, you know, focus a little bit more on consistency and eating consistency and, and working out and everything else. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been great. Um, I I don't know if she'd say the same, but you know, it's definitely for me, it's
2: been good.
0: Well, it sounds like a positive and knowing that she's focusing on other things, including uh, the foundation that the two of you have, I mean, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, that's been really good.
0: I've never been a big fan of hearing one spouse kind of turning off their career for the other, and I'm not saying that she did that for you specifically, but if there are actual benefits that are being reaped from it, then and she's happy, then uh, this sounds like a pretty positive thing.
1: Yeah, well, and she's going to stay active. You know, people will see. I mean, you know, she's her star is bright. Uh, you know, she is she is a star beyond you know, what most any of us could ever say, you know, being a female, being in this world, being successful, obviously beautiful, well-spoken, all these sorts of things. I mean, Courtney's star is, her star is bright. And, you know, she'll stay active with a lot of our partners and sponsors. Um, she'll stay, you know, to me, I think, you know, she'll be great for our foundation. Um, we actually announced a sellout of our tournament today, which, I mean, that's huge, you know, that's huge for us. And so, uh i i there is no doubt that having her as a as part of that is is beneficial and will continue to be beneficial so no i'm you know i i'm excited you know to have her i think that she is as well and uh i think it'll be great i think it'll be great for us
0: greg fetchik you sent in a question asking for us to talk about dampers all the different types that are used i'm actually going to punt this one to next week's inside the sports car paddock show that uh, we lead off every week with myself and my old pal race engineer Jeff Brown so go ahead and check that out next week and we're going to I'm just going to move this topic over there so we can get Graham a couple questions from folks one from Howard Bennett one from I Todd asking about the different liveries that you have throughout the year <laughs> Howard says how does the differing primary sponsors and liveries on your car work from race to race are those sponsorship a true race by race deal or United Reynolds, my Jack total and others, uh, equal and collectively agree, which who gets what races and so on and so forth. Um, and then Todd says, question for Graham. I hadn't really thought about this one though. Honestly, he says, do you think that your multi-sponsor package each year limits your fan base? He says, I know I have difficulty following you week in week out on TV due to the car looking de- different at many races he says following Dixon power and others with the same livery every week for him is much easier.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I could see the value in both of those things. I could certainly see that, you know, us changing all the time is not necessarily, easy, um, and could create and cause some, you know, confusion for people. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, like we, you know, we got to pay the bills, uh, of course. And, you know, we are sitting here trying to contend and fight and, and beat guys with really big budgets. And so, you know, the only way that we've been able to accomplish that and to be able to do that is to, uh, to have multiple sponsors. So how do we do it? Ordinarily, those sponsors are going to, uh, mutually agree on what races they want. The sponsor who pays, who, who is our biggest, Gets the first say. Obviously, United Rentals wants the Indy 500. Um, But everybody else is pretty similar. Um, And, I, uh, you know, there's certain areas like Fifth Third Bank. You know, Indianapolis, big market for Fifth Third Bank. St. Louis, big market for Fifth Third Bank. Columbus, Ohio, huge market. They're based in Cincinnati, big market, right? So there's certain areas that are huge to them that, you know, to total is not, not, not that important. Um, you know, and so it does change. Where you're going to get really confused is when we go to Detroit and I run two different cars in one race weekend. (laughs) Saturday, I'll be one thing. Sunday, I'll be a different. So wait till you see that. But, you know, for us, uh, yeah, I mean, it is a little bit of confusion. We're very fortunate with aero paint technology, the the group that we work with on all of our, our liveries and stuff that, you know, they've made it nice and and easy for us as easy as you can to be able to swap in and out and do all the cool color schemes that we do but uh does it limit a fan base i don't know if it limits the fan base it limits our merchandise sales for sure because you know people don't know i mean well i go into merchandise all i see is united rentals hat well you know indycar doesn't want to carry merchandise for five different sponsor yeah. hats you know so that's a little bit uh that's a little bit tricky but you know we try to work with all of our big partners and make sure that they get what they want, and I think, you know, that we've been very fortunate and are very fortunate that uh, most of them um, are signed to long-term deals and, uh, you know, will be with us for many years to come, which uh, which is really good.
0: Can we go ahead and confirm here on the podcast, Graham, that when you have two sponsors that want the same race date, you make the CEOs arm wrestle to see who actually gets to win?
1: Yeah, that's not a bad idea.
0: See, we're actually serving the public here with the show. See, it's not all just wasting time and stupidity coming out of my mouth. Uh, Let's see. Let's go to Paul Davis, who says, Marshall, I'd love to hear you and Graham weigh in on the lack of passing at Long Beach. He says uh, this year, he says, I blame Firestone for bringing a primary in red that were two alike and did not suffer any major degradation. He says for 2020, what if you added a third tire, a super soft that was for the race only? What do you I mean do we do well, we point at Firestone uh, do we say the lack of yellows what do you think
1: Well lack of yellows is one thing for sure um the car for whatever reason when you got close this year when you get really close behind somebody the understeer levels were were pretty extreme which wasn't wasn't great you know on the tire front I mean you know we have to work with Firestone I think we got to make a tire that's a little bit better I mean the car <laughs> needs a little more mechanical grip out of the tire we see this in a lot of places that we go you know the car lacks you know compared to the old car it lacks so much down right so when you do get close yes the wake is better than the old car but still you need the mechanical grip somewhere you need to get grip somehow and so uh yeah i mean firestone you know makes a, a very durable tire and has always kept us safe and has a great job but could the tire be a little bit softer even the primary? Yeah. I mean, could we find a little bit more mechanical grip out of the tire, which would let us race better? My opinion is yes, we could, but you know, there's a lot of other factors that go into this. Um, so, you know, we just have to be aware of that and, uh, you know, and, and, and try to help them evolve as we go forward and all those sorts of things.
0: This next question is a variation of one we spoke on when you joined us, uh, at the beginning of the year, but I I like the angle here comes in from John Karazinski, who I don't think was the actor in the office, but nonetheless, uh, if you were, thanks, Jim. Uh, he says, Graham, you've worked your butt off building relationships and sponsorships to support your racing career and businesses for young drivers who are struggling to find funding. Do you think it's due to those younger drivers struggling to learn what it takes to sell and build those relationships? So, a, that's the question there, and B, I don't know. Do you start a Graham Ray Hall Academy of teaching young drivers how to find sponsors, or do you hurt <laughs> yourself if you do that thing?
1: Well, I think you gotta be a little bit careful there. Um I think you gotta be a little bit careful to, to give you know, give away your tricks. But I think it is spot on that yes, I think there is a little bit of a problem in today's society with work ethic. This is across the board. This isn't just racing and so because of that you know yes i think that people don't typically want to do the work that it takes to get the job done um they don't want to understand that you know to go and chase sponsors is you know a 24 7 job um you know but it is and it has been for a while um you know, but we've also, I would say as a team, you know, we've kind of rounded the corner where we've been pretty fortunate in recent times that, you know, we've been able to, uh, to grow our sponsor base and be able to find, you know, partners that are really long-term, you know, partners and see great value in what we do. So, uh, you know, am I, am I personally chasing them all day, every day anymore? No, you know, I'm fortunate that I'm not. Am I involved in what they need or what they do every day? Yes. Um, of course, when the call comes to, need something it's going to be me you know so um yeah i mean i do gosh i don't even know you know countless amount of appearances 40 50 appearances a year you know to try to keep them happy and that's but that's our job you know that's what we do so uh but i i I think that yeah i mean i think that there's a little bit of an issue with with people kids understanding what it takes um but you know eventually they're all going to have to go through the process or or the you know Or they won't see their careers, you know, further. And that's because at the end of the day, and I've said this time and time and time again, but when you get to the top, everybody is really good. When you get to like, you know, the sphere of indie lights, right? The Pato's, the Colton's, they're really good. Okay. So now what makes you worth it and not the other guy? And that's what kids don't often, in my opinion, see or think about, you know, trust me, just going and winning an indie Lights race or five does not mean that you are an automatic shoe in You know, there are people that are willing to do the work and have the eth- work ethic and everything else, you know, that can make, they can make the difference. So that's, you know, that's what you have to think about, um, I think pretty, pretty frequently.
0: Still have plenty of questions for you here. I'm going to start paring them down, though, knowing that you're going to have to get on to the rest of your day here soon. Randy Holbrook says, Graham, I imagine, and this would be a great answer. I imagine you will eventually be joining your dad in the ownership side of things many years from now when your driving career is done. Having driven for several teams, what do you think makes a good team owner? And he also says, thank you for always being honest and speaking exactly what is on your mind and for all you do for the fans and promotion of IndyCar. You handled last week perfectly.
1: Well, you know, I think what makes a good team owner is, is understanding um, that, you, you don't, you know, that you don't know it all and understanding that, you know, you put people in place, you hire great people. Uh, And you need to just allow them to do their job. I think that's really been my dad's strength of the last few years is, you know, he's hired a great, great group of people. He's got a good staff. And so, you know, just let them do their magic and and work it from there. Um, Often I think that team owners that are too involved, it can create tension and and concern, I think, for a lot of people, which which is a little bit of an issue. But, uh, I mean, you know, it's, and also, I think as a team owner, when you hit that phase of your life, understanding the value that you can still have, you know, a guy like my dad, a guy like Michael Andretti, uh, Roger Penske in particular, a guy, those guys have a lot of value that they can still add to a sponsor. And, uh, that can, that can take you a long ways as well. Um, do I want to do that? Um, I really don't know. I, I would tell you today, no, I would say no. I, I don't want to be involved as a team owner. But, you know, but I also know and I thought about this the other day that, you know, that my, you know, racing is really our life. And so, you know, to move on from there, you don't really want to move on. But someday, probably, you know, in the next 10 years or so, you know, my time's going to come where, where you know, it's time for me to move on. And, you know, ultimately what you want to do is get back to your, your sport, try to help it continue to grow. So the only way I'll be able to do that is to stay involved as, you know, as an owner. So you know, we'll see. I really haven't put a lot of thought into it. I see the stress. I know the stress it puts on my dad. I mean, I really can't imagine, um, you know, living that each and every day. Uh, but you know, who knows? We'll see what happens.
0: Coming to you in 2029 the graham ray hall indycar podcast brought to you by united rentals and all the different sponsors you mentioned uh let's go to brett ross who says who has the better racing stories your father or your father-in-law john forrest and also who drinks the most wine between the two?
1: Oh, my dad drinks the most wine yeah sure.
0: that, that's an easy one there
1: um yeah stories you know i mean i think both um I think both, you know, John's obviously very full of stories all the time. <laughs> He's um, full
0: of a lot of, you said the word stories, that was so but, polite of you.
1: But, uh, but you know, some of my dad's old racing stories, uh, I, I think that, I'm different, right? Um, you know, John's got, like, great crashing stories. You know, dad's, <laughs> dad's stories are typically, you know, to me, are, are cooler car stories. Like, you know, driving a Porsche 962 or things like that that are really kind of cool and appealing to me.
0: Yeah. But most of your dad's remember, stories don't start with, so I was on fire at 300 miles an hour.
1: Exactly. So, so obviously I'm, you know, that's, that's more appealing to me, you know, to know like, Hey, you know what, what a Porsche 962 feel like? What a 935. How was the boost when that thing kicked, you know, all that sort of stuff is what I like to, to hear about. So, you know, for me, you know, those stories are good. Obviously John's kind of the king you know, the king storyteller. Um but for sure, you know. Both both have a lot of great stories. They're just a little bit different in in their way.
0: Got about four questions here. I'm gonna roll into one because they're all centered on Ray Hall Lanigan's improvement and such. Got one from Tom Anderson, one from Mike Jablo, one from David Nixick and uh, I'll use Tom Schreier's thanks again for sending this in Tom as the one to kind of comprise all them. He says, question for you, Graham Uh, has the leaps made in performance come down to one new element or person on the team. He says the NBC guys mentioned some engineering changes, but we never hear the names of the men or women who deserve some of that credit.
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole package, right? But I do think that, um, you know, Allen has has made a heck of a difference. Alan McDonald. I think that he's he just comes in and you know his demeanor is really good, and I think everybody responds well to him. Uh, I, I, I I I also think that Alan has brought a different um, I don't know concept when it comes to the damping side from what we maybe had before. But having said that, I also think like Tom, who was my engineer last year, Tom like Tom really. Yeah, Tom really fits well into his role now as kind of a technical director and leading the charge on all of the various things. I mean, you know, Tom's strength to me is details. You know, he is a very detail-oriented guy. And as a tech director, you know, that's really good um, because when it comes to the wind tunnel or it comes to shaker rig or it comes to all these other little things, you know, he thinks of a lot of little details that maybe others others don't as as much, you know. So I think it's the cohesiveness of the entire group. You know, Mike Talbot's done an amazing job in simulation. Uh, I actually just got out of the simulator. So, you know, that's why. Wow. I mean, just a little later in the day. But, I mean, you know, for me, um, you know, and Alan and Eddie, I always make fun of them. Like, they're a little old couple, you know. But Alan <laughs> and Eddie are two peas in a pod. They're the same thing, pretty much. So, you know, those guys are great together. Um, and they work. they work extremely well together. So. Yeah, lots of lots of little parts and pieces, but you know, definitely uh improved across the board.
0: I love it. I love it. Let's see. James Liticotte asks, Graham, we've heard from Brian Herta that he's pretty hands off when it comes to Colton. says, what's your experience been like uh with your dad in that regard as one uh famous IndyCar driver trying to uh possibly steer or not steer his son in the sport?
1: Well, it used to be Used to not be that, (laughs) but, uh, in, in in recent times, I'll just say, you know, that the dad is, he's, he's pretty hands-off, you know, he really does not get involved with anything pertaining to me anymore. Um, but having said that, you know, there are times where he'll get all fired up and super happy and geeked out and he comes in and, you know, uh, kind of comically wants to give his opinions on what we need to do to the car and this and that. So, uh, you know, like long last week at Long Beach, he, you know, he, he knew we had a pretty good warm up and that we were pretty competitive. And so he was all smiley and happy and asked me what I needed out of the car to be better in the race. And I told him, and then of course he has to come in the engineering room and tell everybody we need more rear toe and all this and that. So (laughs) sometimes, you know, he's got to come and give his opinions, but it's really, It's really not too frequently. In fact, we had our strategy meeting last week and, you know, we're going through everything and, uh, he, you know, he's normally in the strategy meetings, but I looked over and all he was doing was watching Tiger Woods win the masters (laughs) on his phone. So I'm like, you?" you know, that's about how involved he is now.
0: I love it. All right, let's uh going to close on a couple of fun ones here. Uh, as always, you're a lightning rod for uh, for folks regarding certain teams. AJ Hahn says, Graham, you need to bring out the Ohio State helmet for the Indy 500. It seemed to give you some good luck in Mid-Ohio. Says, my dad's a huge fan of yours and a diehard Buckeye fan. Hasn't missed the Indy 500 since 1964. It'd make his day if you use that helmet. Uh, what else? We also have Christian Dines. I think
1: that I, – I think, and I'm not sure – but I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to go with a Bob Ray Hall replica for the 500 oh, this
0: year. I, so yes,
1: yeah, because you know Bob's always like, well, I don't know, why, why don't you like my helmet? You know, <laughs> he like gets all you know bent out of shape about it. So I've done it before, but I think it'd be I've got a really good feeling about Indy this year, so I think it'd be fun to do.
0: Yeah, and and also Christian Denevsky said, What are your thoughts on your beloved Buckeyes playoffs hopes being dashed early by former coach Luke Fickle and his Cincinnati Bearcats this upcoming football season?
1: That ain't going to happen. Look at that. That ain't going to happen. I'm I'm very confident
0: in that. I love it. Stephen Lake has a good one here, and uh, maybe it's aimed at me because I'm the fat butt here. But he says, After spending the weekend at the Long Beach Grand Prix, and seeing all the wonderful food offerings from the vendors and hospitalities, how do drivers stay on a diet during a race weekend? Hard.
1: Hard. hard and do hard. you? They're, do they're you allow yourself
0: anything, or is it a Sunday night thing, or how does that work? Yeah,
1: Sunday night. Sunday night you yeah, have some fun. Um, no, it's actually like when I'm at when I'm, most races I take my motor home to, it's super easy, right? You just get what you want, Um you know my family's really big into grilling out bob bob's like mr grill master so uh so that's pretty easy um but you know races like last weekend uh like long beach th- those are tough you know those are tough because you're gone a lot and uh you know i had a sponsor commitment thursday night i had a sponsor commitment friday night and, uh, Saturday it was my only time solo with my wife and my mom and, and stepdad. So, you know, we went to, we went to Italian and, and kind of loaded up on some carbs, but it's pretty tricky to be honest. Very wow. tricky.
0: We're going to get you guys some Roscoe chickens and Roscoe's chicken and waffles here, maybe, uh, at the end of next year's race. Uh, all right. I'm going to throw one or two more at you and then we are going to let you go. My man, uh, we have Nick Vance. Who's asked, is there one attribute? You really uh, from your favorite car, whichever one you might have raced, that you want to see part of the new IndyCar chassis in 2022. What's the yeah, thing I you do. want that to do?
1: Yeah, I want that thing to fit around me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess. That would be,
1: they measured my shoulders this weekend, so I'm. I'm that's a good start. But, All right. Uh, yeah, take it. You know. Make it a little more comfortable. That'd be nice. But actually, this car is not too bad. Um, you know, but I, I, you know, to me, what I what I would like to see, and it improved with the modifications and the new aero kit that we made last year. But I'd like to see Lola, you know, kind of like the old Lola, high and very forward uh, radiators, high, very forward um, uh, radiators. Don't need to be high, but forward, uh, but side pods. And, and basically, a nice crash structure. The tub needs to be stronger than what we currently have. Um, a lot of the modifications that we have made to this Delara chassis are the exact same modifications we made to the last Delara chassis. So make the chassis right in the first time. You know, one of the things that we didn't do, or we haven't done, um, is being able to make the cars lighter. Why aren't the cars lighter? We'd had to add all this paneling in the side of the cars for the crash structure. So if the next car has that crash structure properly built in, we should be able to reduce the weight of the car, which was just purely performance. I mean, I don't know how much the cars have gone up in weight since they were, their inception in 2012, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was 100 plus pounds now. So if it was done right, then obviously that would make a big difference.
0: I love it. You know, I'm going to throw, we'll get two more to go here. And one I can't miss because it's a great opportunity to talk about pets, something that are are big in your life and my life. Dan Gallagher says, what's been your biggest challenge in training? Arrow, uh, arrow, <laughs> your dog, he says, anything you can share that would help other pup owners to, uh, to acclimate their dogs to the human world.
1: Well, you know, he, I will admit that I we have been very 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 fortunate. Um, he he has been super easy, which is which is shocking. But uh, he's been pretty mellow uh, so far. I mean, I think that the biggest thing to train him to do, um, obviously, like for me, was just to get him to stop. You know, thinking the entire house was a bathroom. But <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like father, yeah, like probably son. Probably my biggest. Probably yeah. Probably my biggest challenge is upcoming. You know, we live in California part of the time. Courtney's there most of the time. I'm in Indy a lot uh still. I mean, Indy's my residence. And so, but when we're in California, one of the issues we're having is rattlesnakes are pretty bad. Mm. And uh so I got to get him through some snake training here soon to try to keep him. Because he's like, you know, Mr. Like every puppy, like everything's my best friend. So I'm going to just play with it. And it's like, well, you know, we got to, we got to change that a little bit, but he's been awesome uh he was great at Barber. That was his first race. Obviously we did a lot with one cure down there. And he was a he was a total stud and very calm and you know, we've just been lucky so far.
0: I love it. Also has a Twitter handle, something I think he shares with Pagino's dog Norman. Uh something tells me that when Arrow gets a little bit bigger you might have to train him to not eat Simon's little dog. So yeah. that could be oh, uh,
1: no, no, we don't have to worry about that because Simon's dog, Norman, came over, you know, at Barber, we thought we were going to make them friends, and Norman came over and about bit Arrow's head off, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like Jack Russell. So Arrow's like, yeah, no thanks. I love it. Anyway. All
0: right. Well, let's close on this question from our pal, Jerry Siddeth, uh, and this is one that, I, I mean, I can't wait to hear the answer. Graham, price not being an issue, what is the one car you would add to your collection?
1: Well, you know, I mean I think that whew.
0: Since you've owned every vehicle ever made at some point, Ray Hall.
1: Yeah, right. I, I you know, I honestly, um, it depends, but like for me, you know, I, 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 uh, a a GT, Porsche Career GT is still probably the best thing that I've that I've ever driven. Um the Crayer G T is just it's just amazing. And while you know I don't have one. Uh, I did have one. And uh, one of my greatest regrets, although it ser- served me well, I bought it. I bought it at the bottom and I sold it at the very top of the market. But uh is one of my greatest regrets of selling it. It's probably out of my price range now. They're just too, they're just, they're too, too, too valuable, but that's an amazing car. And, uh, but yeah, it's actually, I'm, I'm at the performance shop right now while we do this and we got a lot of cool stuff in here right now, which is cool. So, you know, whether it's something that I own or have owned or lots of customer cars, it's it's pretty fun. You get to see, drive, enjoy a lot of cool stuff.
0: Well, I really appreciate you taking some time here, my friend, and we'll look forward to seeing you here soon, hopefully. And next time you visit the show, I'm hopeful, hoping we'll be talking about a win or something like that and no Same drama here. or questions uh, about whether things were right or wrong as handed down by race control.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Ricardo Juncos, you are a busy man calling in from Argentina, right? I mean, thank you. First of all, I'd be saying, heck no, man. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm going to enjoy the beautiful weather down here. How you doing, my friend?
2: Everything's good, Marshall. Uh, good to be with you again. Uh, yes, I'm in Argentina right after uh, Long Beach weekend. I'm back to, e- to Indy for one day and then... Came back here to pick it up, my son, which is here for like a month. So now going back to state on Saturday.
0: I love it. Well, as usual, you have a bunch of great questions that have come in for you. And knowing that you are busy down there and you have uh, all kinds of things going on, why don't we jump right in to all the questions that have been sent in. First one is actually more of a a statement uh, than anything, or at least for the most part. This comes in from Tim Gundlach, father of Chip Ganassi Racing Assistant Engineer, Kate Gundlach. He says, Ricky's a great guy. Yeah, he says, he had me over for dinner with his young family a long time ago when he was starting his Mazda program up here in Florida. He says, my daughter was helping with some chassis setup stuff. Anyways, just wanted to say how happy I am for him and his team to come this far. His determination is amazing. Uh, He says, I guess I would ask if the fire is still burning inside you as bright as it was 10 or 12 years ago, and is IndyCar your <laughs> ultimate goal for the team, or are there other series that are of interest for you?
2: Well, uh, good question and great guy. I remember those those years. And Kate, she worked for us. She was uh, fantastic. It was a Promada team. I think that actually was even before we started racing in, in Promada in 2009. I'm pretty sure it was 2007 or 8. Uh, good memory. Great guy. I remember he liked motorcycles and from Florida. So good time together. And yes, I mean, the fire is still there. Like, I guess I'm one of those crazy guys like many others about racing. But uh, of course, IndyCar is, I think, like I always said, right? One of the biggest cities in the planet. Um, I'm been very fan of IndyCar since I was a little kid because my dad used to follow that as well when he was a reporter before he raced cars. Also, so... Obviously Nicar you know, is the ultimate goal and you know, we know it's it's really hard. It's really hard to get there, but uh we keep doing what we're doing with the same fire as you mentioned from the beginning, right? We never lose that. I think if anything we have more and more, which it sounds crazy, but uh and I think that's what it takes, right? A lot of passion for something and now you just work and like I said before, right? Sometimes more difficult than other times, but you get there, you know. So like this guy was saying, I mean, uh, um, long time, we keep working, we keep growing, and a lot of passion for motor racing, I guess, you know, from my side, so it's all good and good memories.
0: Let's go to uh, both James Liddicote and James Piley Jr. sent in similar questions. He said, Ricardo, is there a benefit to the IndyCar team sponsorship-wise from running your new team in IMSA? And Robert says, what's easier to sell? IndyCar or IMSA sponsorships?
2: Um good question. And I don't I don't think I have a good answer for that because at the moment it's still difficult both uh, to sell for sponsors. But I guess that's because we are a very small team yet and it's hard to you know, to you need to show something first I guess and, and, and be there more time. That's what we're trying to do before you ask for something or before you, you have a, a value, you know, as a team. That can suit any sponsor. So I guess uh, I I will qualify in both both series in a in a kind of on the same level of that, a little bit different in marketing or demographic I think model, but uh, they're both uh, good series. I think it's a lot to offer to any sponsor because there is a value in both of them. So I guess it's it's, it's matter of, for me to keep working and keep trying to find this way to to make it happen. But um, I don't see one easier than the other for me. Are both the same.
0: Justin Brockwell asks an interesting question, and it might be driven by the fact that we've only seen uh, your IndyCar program on track for one of the four races held so far this year. Justin says, how much longer do you hunt for sponsors before making the decision to possibly sell your IndyCar equipment in favor of maybe using that money to invest further in your sports car program?
2: No, I don't think that's that's the idea. Um, we're gonna keep pushing for this, and you know, we we do have a legitimate sponsor at, at Outing. as you mentioned, with the only great we did so far with NFP, great, yeah. great, great partner, and we're looking to do some more with them in the near future. So it's it's a slow process, but I think it's it's good for both. Was a good experience, and and I think that it value them, you know, with them or with some other companies. So I'm still optimistic. I'm, I'm you know, I don't want to one team to put the things in the other one or vice versa. I would like to have to keep both teams and that will be the, the best situation for me in the future. So we're just going to keep trying while we keep doing and and hopefully we, we're going to have a you know soon more races and eventually full-time team in IndyCar and, and DPI.
0: Ricky wants to race everything. That's the secret. Uh, the Formula One and NASCAR announcements are coming soon. Um, again, we've got a couple of similar questions here. This one comes in from Dylan Burgett who says... It seems like you've had more success finding sponsors for IMSA at the moment. He says, other than the overall price tag, are there any unique factors or challenges for getting funding for an IndyCar program? And he says, thanks and best of luck to you, I guess. And I'll just throw this in maybe as a a conversation starter. Obviously, IndyCar is not inexpensive. IMSA running the Cadillac DPI that you do, that's also not cheap. I would just say that the, the, the character between the two championships is one where I think you're going to find more drivers on the sports car side that are accustomed to paying to be in a car than an IndyCar where there might not be as many funded drivers walking around uh, asking if they can uh, you know, be part of your team. Are you seeing that as one of the unique factors or challenges?
2: Yes, I think that's correct. I think both cities actually are running very, very similar similar numbers budget-wise. The difference with the, the sport cars in IMSA, you, you share the car with four drivers. So now, you know, you have the short races and endurance races. So it's a little bit easier to find those, those drivers who eventually can bring the money. They have some sponsors. And actually, that's the way I'm running my IMSA team. I found a sponsor in with for the Austin race in IndyCar that was a legit sponsor for the team. So for us, it's a little bit, at the moment, because of that, a little bit easy on the IndyCar side. But I agree, IndyCar, as one driver only, became pretty much impossible to run from driver's money, right? Or driver's sponsor. So the team has to have sponsors. And I guess I'm probably the only one without. So that's that's big difference right so that's why i'm so happy with nfp when they jump in and we do austin race so that's a big starting point for us going forward right
0: and the other thing too it's just a uh, an obvious numbers thing with a single driver in an indycar and uh, the need for them to bring a budget that budget's being spread across one person in IMSA, where yes. at minimum you have two drivers per race, if not three at some and four at, you know, at least one other. Exactly. You you exactly. slice that pie to a much smaller uh, financial piece, and it's a heck of a lot easier to get someone to bring half or a third than having to bring the whole thing. So I think that's just yeah, absolutely. something that's hard absolutely. to ignore. Let's go to uh, the next question, yeah. probably the most burning question. We've had this from a few people. Michael McNeely sent this in. Marco Strazzula as well. He says, "Ricardo, are you going to have a car in the Indy 500 this year?" And then uh, Marco said, "What's your plans for the Indy 500?" So, knowing that you have two Delara DW12 Chevys built with the new Universal Aero kit, any hint or suggestion? How many Juncos cars we might see uh, on the entry list? Yes, yeah, so we'll
2: be. Are we going to be announcing this? Very soon, I guess, maybe in the next few weeks, but uh, it's going to be only one car. Um, unfortunately, we are a little bit late to put all this together. The reason why also was the late IMSA program, you know, last year as well, put us in a situation where we, we really challenged our team, you know, to get ready for Daytona. So now we are kind of shaking and now we are just getting better. As you can also see at the Long Beach last weekend, how the team was much better now. So now oh, yeah. we are kind of set it down and now we are. Back to more kind of normal path in the team. So because of that as well, we were not able to put the two cars in the in the India as I wanted last year. But at least with with one car we're gonna be there. I think we performed very very good last year. So we hopefully we can have also a nice you know result we want to. But we'll be announcing maybe in the next week or two everything.
0: Just from a business standpoint, Ricardo, knowing that you do have two cars, two built cars, do you try and lease that second car to someone to generate some income? Do you hold on to it in case you need it, in case, you know, worst case scenario, a bad crash and you need to go to a backup? Just curious mindset. Yeah, no, we're going
2: to keep it as a backup car. Actually, that will be the road course car, the one we use at Austin. Um, the one we're going to use for the Indies, is the one we prepped for last year, Oval, and that one stayed like a Oval mode. So that's the plan for the moment. I think even it's a little bit too late now to rent anything. Everything is already set for pretty much everybody else. Um, from the, you know, tire manufacturer, engine manufacturers, I mean, they, they're looking at a lot of cars, I think, for the 500. So I think now it's, it's done, right? Even if I want to rent it, it will be probably impossible. So the car is going to be there anyway. So. You know, maybe someone need it, and it's going to be ready to roll my second car. But uh, for the moment,
0: we're going to keep it. Smart. All right, we let's get down to how many more do you have? One, two, three, four questions to go, and then we'll let you back to enjoying yourself in beautiful Argentina. Um, <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> William Matson says. And I love this question, William. Thank you. I've, I don't know why I've never asked you this. I feel stupid. He says, hi, Ricardo. How and why did you come up with your green, orange, and white color scheme? Uh, and he says, also, do you have any concerns that it may look too similar to Pato Awards' current green, red, and white livery? But how would you come up with this, you know, what has become a classic Hunkos Racing color scheme?
2: Um uh- that's a good question, and actually, everybody asks me that question because being from Argentina, our flag is light blue and white, so nothing to do with, <laughs> you know, those colors. But uh, I love the green. I always, my mom told me that the, when I was a kid, I started talking, I can say every color but the green. When they asked me about the green, I couldn't pronounce the, the green, and that's the color I like after. Um, and then when I was a kid, also my dad used to do the green and white for his little love cars that he used to wear when he was a kid, and he keep those kind of bodywork, So I play with those when I was a kid, right? So for me, always was black and uh, green and white, always. And then we just add the orange back in 2007 when I had the, the racing school with the open wheel cars, with the Formula Renault, was a customer that has an orange company. So they said, okay, we need to paint, to paint the car in orange. I said, no, I can, you know, we're going to leave the car <laughs> green and white, but we add this little orange strip at least, and I like it. So I like the way it looks, and we, we keep it, right? So since then, that was the the team colors, and we keep it until now. Um, and obviously, yeah, like you say, he said it's kind of similar to Pato Award, but he has red instead of orange because of the Mexican Mexican flag, right? But uh, I guess that's – we have it first. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we the, the lead on, on my template, so.
0: And what is, it, what is it like, Ricardo, just walking out into your shop floor and seeing – your you know Indy Pro two thousand cars, Indy Lights, Indy cars, and now even uh, your IMSA DPI car, all wearing those colors. It might be a bit of an obvious question, but I'm guessing there just has to be some pride that you've created something unique, and now it's spread across a lot of very diverse forms of racing.
2: I mean, it's it's a good feeling. Think about it. Like seventeen years ago, I lost everything in Argentina. Right, I was devastated and without money, without knowing what to do in life. Um, that was not the first time we lost everything there. Um, so then, you know, I walked into the United States in 2002 with nothing on it, just passion and dreams for keep doing what I love, which is racing. Um For me, like you say, right today when I walk into the shop and we have all these people working and we have these four teams and we did what we did already, achievement championships and, you know, winning races and develop some drivers like today are even Tatiana Calderon, you know, she was part of my program in Go-Kart, in Formula. She was part of my my school program in the Open Wheel, two years in Promada, And now when you, I saw her now in Formula One as a test driver, or well, Connor Davis, Spencer Pigot, you know, all these kids. For me, it's, it's amazing, right? It's something that I obviously I will never, never imagine to be where we are today. So very, I guess, proud of not just myself, my team, the people. I always say I'm lucky because I always surround by good people. And I always say, right, this is not just one person effort. It's everybody. It's a team effort. So you need each other. And that's, that's what we're doing. For me, it's obviously a great feeling. That's why, you know, um, we just want to go step by step. If everything finished today, like I always say, I'm fine because I will never imagine being where I am today, right? So I'm very, very happy.
0: All right. We've got a couple questions left, Ricky. Let's go to Jordan Darwin who says, did you and Pato have any discussions about him driving for you earlier this year after he left the Harding Steinbrenner racing team?
2: Yes, we did. Uh, we know Pato, we know each other for a long time, since the go kart times. Uh, so we always talk to Pato for prominence and delight in, in those moments and, of course, going forward. But uh, I think it's, it's, we are in a difficult, difficult situation. You know, I think he's doing the right, the right thing. He chose a team where they have a full season last year with two drivers. He has a teammate now. Um, Alonso will really be part of the team on the Indy 500. So I think he's doing the smart move. Um, you know, we like each other. Good, good guy. What can I say about driving? I mean, like I said last year, he did everything somebody can ask him for, right? And I think he he was in a tough situation this year. Uh, very bad what happened with him. I'm happy that he has something going on now with, with curling. And, I mean, his performance is fantastic. So um, I'm very happy with him. And uh, you never know in life, maybe one day in the future when we are an established team and we maybe have one, two drivers or two cars and even more experience, we race together. But, unfortunately, it never happened until now. But, uh, you know, for for me, it's, it's, it's really, really good kid, good family, and I wish him the best, you know.
0: All right, let's go to Don Davis. <clears throat> Bit of a fun one here. He says... I saw that the Las Vegas odds are set 500 to one for Kyle Kaiser to win the Indy 500. He says, uh, let's say I put down a $20 bet. Uh, He says, do you think Kyle could win the Indy 500 using the same clutch and coast fuel saving strategy that got Alexander Rossi the win in 2016? So interesting one. Uh, What do you think about Kyle? Has he had to learn that kind of thing where, if not just going on outright speed and trying to win by being the fastest. Has Kyle shown you enough in his development as a driver where if you asked him to do something extreme on the fuel saving like that, he might be able to use it to your advantage?
2: Yes, I think Kyle improved big time. Unfortunately for him after winning the Indy Light Championship, it was difficult only to do four races like last year, right? I think he did a great job. I mean, even with IndyCar last year it was some some partial Moment very, very good, even the Indy 500, never mind, right? Before the engine blew up, you know, we, we, we were really, really fast. And qualifying 17 with only one car and a rookie was, it was was very good. But what I saw him doing also on Long Beach last weekend was very good. He saved fuel in the beginning. We put him on the lead. And now he has really bad tires compared to everybody else with new tires. And he pulled away from the field. So that was very, very good to see. I think now after he's been racing now the Daytona 24 kota and now and Long Beach with the DPI car and is you know in IndyCar is now getting back to where he was back in 2017. So he's very talented guy. He won Indyline Championship, right? He beat drivers like today are performing very good in IndyCar. So it's like anything, else, you need to have the 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 opportunity, you know, for for race for long time. It's not just good to do one-off race. So he's in a tough situation, but I think he he has the talent and. Every time we do, we send him to do something, he executed perfect. So, you know, he's he's been great. And I hope, you know, his, his racing career continue in, in a more permanent way. You know, that's as been so far. But uh, we everybody know how difficult it is. I think he's doing everything he can. And we want to obviously try to help him also as much as possible, right? Let's
0: go to our final question, Ricky. This comes in from Henri Fawn, who says, Renus VK is with your team for the second year now. What improvements has he made since last year, and what does he need to work on to be ready for IndyCar? He says, good luck and hope to see you in the winter circles for Indy Lights at more races this year.
2: Um, yes, I mean, Renos has been uh, very, very good with us. And, and, you know, second year, like he said, now in Indy Lights, very young kid, very talented. Obviously, a lot to learn, but he's very talented. So he already won in the first weekend at St. Pete with Indy Lights. Um so against people with experience. So I think he's 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 doing everything he has to do, right? He's very young. I think he's now eighteen years old, or oh, still seventeen maybe, but um and it's a kid, right? A little kid that is super talented, very, very oriented to racing, so fully focused for racing, which is good to see. So you can see the dedication and, and he pushed so hard for himself that motivates the whole team, right? When you see someone like that, you, you have to go also with him. So I can see a, a great future for him. Um, Indy Lights, obviously, championship is always very difficult. Everybody knows that. But so far, we are, you know, second place, very close to the lead. long championship still. And his learning, I think the, the biggest learning from him from last year to going to Indy Lights is been the technical aspect of the car and the feedback, how he expressed himself, how he tells the engineer what the car needs to to be for him to drive the performance. So we're working on it. He's doing a big improvement every race. So very, very happy to have him on board.
0: I love it. Ricky, thanks for taking some time, my man. I know you are super busy right now and many, many miles away from me here in California. But as always, really appreciate you, my friend, and look forward to seeing you here very soon.
2: Same here. It's always a pleasure, Marshall. Thank you very much.
0: All right, and that was the awesome Ricardo Junkos, Ricky, as we call him. Just love that guy, taking time while in Argentina, yet another measure of how awesome he is. So let's get into the questions you have for me, all brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. We're going to go with Paul Hirsch to start. He says, Rossi looked pretty dominant at Long Beach, past and present champions. Who do you think his his style uh, best resembles? And he also adds, do you think a cost control on shocks might help some of the smaller teams? Uh, Paul, I would say Scott Dixon really comes to mind as a stylistic comparison for Rossi. They're just two very uncomplicated drivers, meaning they're not very finicky. And you will hear for sure from many drivers, far too many to be successful in champion caliber, that... When the car is off a little bit, and it's always about chassis balance, the front and the rear being disconnected in some way, too much oversteer, too much understeer, maybe just too neutral. Um, Too many drivers are adversely affected by the car not being close to perfect. Rossi and Dixon are just very numb to that fact. It's not that they don't feel it, it's just that they do not allow it to limit their ability to make speed and so I'd say that comes to mind Dixon for sure and uh, as I wrote as well Michael Andretti his team owner is someone uh, that he reminds me of just that I'm going forward I'm going to drive the wheels off of it even if the car is far from perfect you're still going to see something special it might not look special meaning it might not be first place second place and the cameras are on them the entire time but if you happen to be watching trackside you'll notice that wow (laughs) that was really special on the way to seventh place Uh, but the car probably should have been 12th or 13th so rossi just has that ability to drive beyond an issue or not let a significant issue hold him back and you know all the elite drivers are dealing with silly amounts of talent paul It's just a case of some let this perfect scenario in their mind really hold them back of if it isn't there, then boy, Marco Andretti is a perfect example of that. Marco is easily affected by the car being off a little bit and you throw a Rossi into that same car and you get a much different result because he just does not let that uh, become a limitation for himself. As for the cost control on shocks, that it comes up at least once every couple of weeks. And here's the thing about racing, and it's just a bit of a generalism, Paul. If it wasn't shocks, it would be something else. So we can say everyone's using spec shocks, but as long as there is something on the car that is kept open for teams to develop and treat in an individualistic manner, that's going to receive the vast amount of money for development so shocks have become the lightning rod for this because it's the one true area where teams can dive in and go nuts but if you make spec shocks then it's you know pick something else that might be open unless indycar were to make everything spec and i hope that day never happens this is just the byproduct of reality and if indycar were to do that say everything can't touch a thing all bought off the shelf teams would spend at Probably a lot more money, believe it or not, because they would have to go and pour untold zillions into virtual testing, uh, off-track testing, wind tunnel, this, CFD, just every single thing imaginable. Teams are going to spend the money to find an advantage that will never change in motor racing. So the area where it is spent changes. This In this instance, this era, it's dampers. But uh, no matter what it is, teams will absolutely spend as much as they can to find the thing that will help them to beat the others. So that's not going away. Let's go to Thomas Gross. Thomas says, in a mostly spec series, what allows Rossi to drive away from the field like that? Is it his driving style uh, through a particular corner? Is it dampers or something else? It's a perfect day, Thomas. It really was. It was he and his race engineer Jeremy Millis, not only nailing uh, the the damping and springing combination and anti roll bar combination. It was nailing all of their suspension settings, toe, camber, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was nailing their aero setup. Their center of pressure was absolutely spot on. That's effectively the aerodynamic balance uh, to go with the chassis suspension balance. They nailed their tire pressures. I mean, just. They got everything right that you could imagine. And then you give that to a guy like Rossi, who is just ridiculously talented. And that's what we get. So it was a day where everything went right. And his performance is maybe a reminder of how rare that is. How even when a guy will win by a couple of seconds, um, it's very possible that there's still, if not expected, uh, it's very, very possible that there's, uh, just something that is off a little bit that isn't quite perfect. So in this case, they got everything right, which was pretty darn cool. Let's go to Ryan Terpstra he says you've inspired the phrasing. Uh, well, I guess the reminder of the phrasing hashtag danger zone, which I asked on Twitter, have we already kind of burned that thing out after three races? Cause it seems like we hear it every two or three minutes on the broadcast uh he says five or six qualifying sessions have been interrupted by red flags or maybe more this season in just four races at what point do teams stop waiting and start sending their drivers out to avoid the hashtag danger zone i know it was discussed a bit in depth but then long beach happened and both Schmidt peterson motorsports cars are put in a horrible position at the start uh you know the one thing that comes to mind ryan is this there's always going to be a little bit of gamesmanship As for when to send a driver out on reds in the Firestone fast six sessions, you want to wait as late as possible so that you have all drivers on red, same rubber going down. And also knowing that in many instances, you have one lap of peak performance, maybe two, and you would rather wait until the car is as light as possible, burned off uh, the, the correct amount of fuel and nail that time. Uh, So it's not just setting the fastest lap, but also the perfect conditions for the car uh, from a weight and performance standpoint, and that often comes late, very late in the stage of whatever uh, Firestone fast blank portion of the qualifying process Uh, there's certainly a reason we're seeing more and more reason for teams to say tech with that (laughs) we're going straight out on reds and making sure that we get in a as good of a banker lap as possible as good as a, a safety net as possible but we might be ignoring absolute peak lap performance with those tires so that's the reason you don't see many folks do that they know that while it would be the safest route, it would not necessarily be the fastest they might be leaving a tenth or two, or who knows on the board that's why we tend not to see that. The one thing that came to mind here, and maybe it's a maybe it's a rule tweak for IndyCar to consider, knowing how these red flags have been rather prevalent this year in uh, Firestone roden street course qualifying it's been annoying to say the least uh we've had a number of teams that you know have said hey through timing and circumstance uh we just got hosed and we're starting way back and it's almost a guarantee to ruin our race i'd love to see indycar maybe consider saying we're going to guarantee in each stage of qualifying three laps of running on reds So, uh, meaning you get your outlap, you get two hot laps and there you go. So to me, it's the only thing that comes to mind that doesn't soak up a ton of time and also says that if there is that odd red flag or what, as you mentioned, what's becoming somewhat common, that red flag late in a session and a number of drivers weren't able to get out and put in representative laps, if odd timing or just misfortune is the thing that is messing with teams uh i don't think there's anything wrong with saying look we're gonna say you're gonna get three laps on reds uh, regardless of when a red does or does not fall and if you got in your three before the red great you're done if you didn't well uh we're going to make sure that you can get them in not a quality i realize is not really a big part of my view for motor racing But if folks, if there's a reason that teams are indeed waiting to the end, the last few minutes of each qualifying round, because that is when peak performance can be achieved, it's not just laziness. Uh, There's an actual performance reason for it. So to me, I would at least say, hey, what is the real goal here? It's to go as quickly as possible. Well, if you're going to ask team to burn up tires just out of fear that things could go wrong just seems to me like we're working the wrong angle of the problem if you want to make sure that we are seeing the absolute maximum possible say, great you're going to get three minutes i'm sorry three laps of reds period and whether it's a red or not we're going to ensure that that happens in every round so that we do see we do find out who is fastest that is part of it it's not just setting the order it's hopefully new track records it's something to triumph something to celebrate before we get into the race so I like that idea. I don't know if I've fully fleshed it out, but that's at least what came to mind initially. The last question you have here, Ryan, is you says, on a related note, did you ever see a replay of what happened with Marcus Erickson and Jack Harvey? I know a penalty was given to Erickson, but I never saw the evidence. I'd quite like to see what put Harvey's car up into the grass in the fountain. I did not see that either. I saw a photo of it. Uh did see... Uh, Jack's car was actually, you know, significantly lifted, but did not see a replay of what triggered all of that clearly with, uh, multiple cameras that are not necessarily broadcast cameras that IndyCar has access to. They must have seen something that gave them a clear idea of who was at fault and then handed that down to Ericsson, who I would suggest, boy, Uh, I know I was expecting to see more from Marcus. I know he's a rookie. Um, I know he's seeing some of these tracks for the first times, like a few of the other rookies, but boy, I did not expect him to be as ineffective as he has been so far through four rounds. So a little bit of a sidebar that means nothing, something who knows, maybe that's something to write about here. Go to Dylan Burgett. Next Dylan says, Marshall, while I appreciate your self deprecating sense of humor, You talk such extensive smack about your own abilities and achievements as a race mechanic and engineer. Can you just as once tell us a story about the time where you got it right? You did those jobs long enough that there must have been some times when you nailed it. Here's the the little insight into my brain, Dylan. Uh, I guess it is self-deprecating in some ways. It's just me being really honest, and it's not me trying to be hard on myself. I just want to be honest. I was very good at what I did at times in my career. I was never great and I've worked with greats. I've learned from greats. I have envied greats. I just know that as a race engineer, as a mechanic, I was not, uh, really of that kind of amazing caliber to your point though. Uh, it's not as if there's a, if you aren't great, you can't get a job kind of bar of entry. And so as someone who could do the job and do it well, uh, certainly had a long career. Uh, it occurred to me, this is maybe kind of dumb, but, uh, it did occur to me last week and I guess I was somewhat surprised by it or I don't know what, but, uh, I started or I became a professional race car mechanic at the age of 17. And uh, again, I don't know, I guess it was just what it was to me and it never really stood out as interesting, but. Looking back now, uh, I wow, <laughs> I guess I forget that I started that young. And by professional, I mean I was getting paid in terms of like a real hardcore pro chief mechanic. No, not at all. But I was actually getting paid at 17 years old while working in high school at a uh, Bay Area prep shop kind of in the more close on the border of Silicon Valley, prepping a bunch of smaller open wheel cars from Formula Fords, Formula Ford 2000s, up to Atlantics and such. And there was a whole fleet of them. It was a great thing. I really enjoyed it. Did it by myself. Uh, The the owners of the uh, prep shop would uh, come in, usually after work, Uh, not every day, but they would help at times. But for the most part, that was on me to uh, look after. But I was very good, Dylan, very good at times. But I suffered from, I guess... I don't know if boredom is the right way of putting it, but my mind was not good at just locking into one repetitive thing for really, really long bouts. And that's often what it takes on the mechanical side. And so I'd go really hard and try and be my best and it would be really good. And we would have some very good results. And then inevitably there'd be a little bit of a dip in my attention span or interest would lose heart a little bit and i'd get called out for it and i might push back because i was being vain but uh, in reality i should not have because it was my fault on the engineering front i mean uh, yeah i I would say that again there were stretches where i was really good and more on the assistant engineer side uh, i spent more time as an assistant engineer than a full bore race engineer at least while i was doing things full-time in racing uh, definitely, the race engineer side is something that I maybe did more frequently once I left full time. So I did a lot of contract and fly-in stuff. And yeah, I mean, there. I guess I'll have to think about more instances. But for those that I worked with, I think some, not all, would have positive things to say. I usually entertained people. I mean, that's that's one thing I could always do. But yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm. It's not false modesty. It it truly isn't, and that that's probably the main thing I'd hope to mention here. It's not me being self-deprecating because I think I was great, Uh, nor is it being hard on myself. It's just I've worked with the greats. I know the ones who I can look at and say, whew, boy, that's an all-timer. I was never close. And so I just want to be clear because I think there could be a a misinterpretation that if you're in IndyCar and you spent many years there or the uh, affiliated formulas or sports cars like I did, that you've got to be great. No, no it's probably just like any profession you've got a whole bunch of folks that are good a limited number that are great and a few that are you know true all-timers and uh more often than not i was in that good and so yeah just uh being honest so but maybe i should be a little bit less self-deprecating and just uh talk about stuff so maybe that's the uh the little note here for me to take home let's go to tom boyers who says marshall mclaren have a driver crew and car for the indy 500 do you think there's any possibility of them reassembling during 2019 for one of the other oval races or the anything else on the IndyCar calendar? It says Pocono in Texas would come to mind. Do you hear any rumors or paddock speculation on this topic? Spoken with Zach Brown, McLaren Racing CEO, quite often about their general thoughts and plans. It really does sound like Indy 500 2019 is the only thing they are working on, the only thing they are intending to do and the possibility of 2019 full-time is certainly out there keep in mind with all that fernando alonso is doing this year across a variety of forms of motor racing he seems like someone who is in bucket list mode not i have a passion to continue racing full-time heavy 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 on track activity type scenario i realize he's about to complete a full season with the Toyota WEC team, but we're talking about, you know, one of the shortest calendars of any professional racing series. So not like he is on track every couple of weeks with the, uh, the WEC Toyota effort. Yeah. Altogether, I just wouldn't see that with Fernando would say that as we look forward, um, fairly confident that uh, Zach has expressed a lot of interest in Pato Award in terms of contractual availability. Would think that as we're staring at 2020, if McLaren were to decide to go full-time, that especially after working with Pato throughout the month of May through this Carlin Racing technical relationship that McLaren has forged with them, they'd have a pretty good idea as to how special that kid is. And provided he can be had... I don't know if he's on a one-year deal, two-year deal, one year with an option, team rights on the option, driver rights on the option with Carlin. Truly don't know where he stands, but the fact that Zach is sniffing around at Long Beach about Pato's potential of being a free agent or potential of being acquired, if that's something they chose to do, that tells me a lot, Tom, and I would just fill that in for more of a future thing than getting the old team back together once again for 2019 after Indy. Also know uh, in I believe most instances all the people who have been brought on on a contract basis to engineer the car, serve as a mechanic, etc., that their contracts extend through the Indy 500 period. So at least for what I know, it really is meant to be a month of May thing only in 2019. Darren Dubois says, hey, for the few events, mainly street events, that have really crowded schedules like Long Beach and sometimes St. Pete, has it been considered running some stuff on Thursday? It says, St. Pete did some stuff on Thursday once, I believe. It was not a spectator event to give the Undercard Series more time on track. I think Long Beach did a little bit of that as well, Darren, a few years ago. I'm blanking a little bit, but it does come to mind At least for how I view it, I would say if you're going to have a schedule that is packed with content, the series, the drivers, the team showing up for that, the folks that are funding it, sponsors in many cases, those dollars are being spent with the expectation that you're going to be on track in front of people. So the, well, let's run some on Thursday before anybody, you really can't even buy a ticket to turn up and spectate on Thursday out of St. Pete or Long Beach. I'd say that would be the main consideration that comes to mind. So yeah, while it might be really packed, um, I would say I'd rather see the uh, organizations out of St. Pete, and Long Beach, Detroit, etc., say, how do we make Friday through Sunday just really packed full of great stuff instead of pushing some off to a time where yeah, it might might free up the schedule a little bit during the main three-day event, but if you're having to push stuff to Thursday, again, the uh, the value there might be something that could lead some teams and drivers to say, eh, maybe I can skip this one unless I'm running for a championship. So uh, let's move on to another one from Darren who asks, uh, besides the extra and dready entry, are you hearing of any extra, additional extra entries for the Freedom 100 on Carb Day? We did just have the one that uh, we were kind of sort of expecting that is the return of Chris Wyndham with the uh, Bellardi Racing and Bird family entry. Haven't heard much about additional, additional entries, Darren. So it's something that I will certainly be keeping my uh, eyes open about and hope to hear that we're going to have more. But I'm not expecting much or if, you know, if there's one extra coming in, great. But not really thinking the overall crowd is going to expand by any appreciable amount more than what we have now. Let's see, James Liticope. <laughs> what can car fans do to squash the stupid Angels Major League Baseball team thing about them moving to Long Beach idea? What can we do to get rid of it? Well, James, I mean, uh, I would say just rooting for the, the opponents would be one thing, but, you know, just to maybe encourage their best players to leave. That might be a fun thing because ultimately if the Angels are, granted, they're I don't believe they are in anyone's expectations of being a world series winner this year or in the coming years in theory there's not a lot of value to be had there there would in theory be not a lot of value to try and move them and a a city and a mayor like the one in long beach might be less interested in trying to bring them if in reality there just aren't a ton of people turning up to watch because they're a stinker so that would be my little subversive move there get all their best players to leave so the overall property uh, value goes down for that uh, overall team. But then again, that'd be messing with a pretty large organization and they have a lot of employees too. So disregard everything I just said. It was all really bad and stupid. Uh, I mean, speaking with uh, Jim McAleen, who's in charge of the Grand Prix, as he told Robin, as he told me, they've yet to meet with uh, the anyone from the Angels or the city regarding this. It doesn't feel like it's something that's going to happen. Um, Mildly concerned, not vastly worried at this point, James. I would put it there uh, and probably nowhere else. Mention once again, I appreciate you all hanging in with me here. I am indeed, uh, I think, getting sicker by the question. So, uh, clean breathing, uh, easy breathing and definitely becoming more of an issue, but nonetheless, appreciate your patience, and I will do my best to soldier through. Let's go to Dan Lanes, who says, After walking the paddock this weekend for the umpteenth time, then seeing Colton Hurd almost run over an air hose in the race, why don't teams utilize battery-operated impact wrenches like the ones they use in the paddock uh, when it comes time to go racing? I get the fact that you don't want to risk a dead battery during the race. Do the air wrenches spin that much faster or provide that much more torque than their battery-operated counterparts? This is hardly specific to IndyCar as virtually every form of motorsport seems to use air wrenches for in-race tire changes. Uh, answered some of your own questions here, Dan. Yes, the, uh, the variety, there aren't that many, but of the handful of air guns that are used, uh, they are very expensive, very lightweight. Um, they, are, <laughs> they are fine little pieces of kit and they are not inexpensive what you have is the ability for them to spin up and achieve either peak torque, the torque needed to either hold a wheel in place or remove that nut as quickly as possible to expedite the tire changes. What you have with the battery-operated versions is while some of them can certainly generate a lot of torque, it's how long it takes to get to that torque. Uh, You know that for sure with the special Uh, The specialist um, air guns that are being used with the amount of uh, pressure that is being set on the nitrogen bottles to spin them up and spin them down, you also, well, you not only have that massive amount of speed, uh, which is clearly something you want during a pit stop, but also you have consistency so that you know time and time and time again unless that uh, nitrogen bottle is running down, uh, but that would then get changed out and or there's a lot of them daisy-chained together. But regardless, you what you have here is both speed and consistency, and those are two things that I would not attribute to kind of garden-variety impact wrenches, like the ones you see used under the tent, and that's just meant to rattle uh, the wheel nut on or off While towing the car to and from pit lane or uh, impound or tech or wherever else, Uh, it's not meant to be the actual full maximum torque required. So get your point about, you know, someone almost running over a hose, not sure I would fundamentally change everything about how something is done just because that might happen or there's a potential of that happening every now and every now and then that was just that pit stop itself was kind of a case study by the harding steinbrenner team of how not to do everything uh drastically late getting the fuel probe in uh really long duration with the wheel change and then also the uh the person standing at the left front tire who is in charge of sending the car getting ready and basically preparing and then trying to send Colton while forgetting to throw his own uh, wheel gun connected to its air hose over to pit wall. So it happens. (laughs) It absolutely happens. There's nothing, you know, negative or critical to throw at the team. Every team will goof up something at some point. Every team did got something a little bit wrong during the Long Beach race uh, during one of their stops. So they just happen to concentrate kind of sort of all the major errors you could make into one. But would not foresee a need to change any drastic thing because it, the running over the air hose part is not a super common thing. So let's go to J.D. Ellis. He says, while post-race, Will Power said he just overcooked to the entry to turn one. On replay, a bunch of brake dust billowed out of the front wheels that I didn't notice otherwise throughout the race. Anything else possibly going on there mechanically? Happened to see that, J.D., actually, when it happened? Um, yeah, I mean, keep in mind that with uh, the the somewhat late braking going on in turn one, uh, he's getting on the brakes super extra hard. Not as if they aren't already braking hard at their normal braking point, but by carrying more speed and deeper into the corner, uh, you're going to be <laughs> using both feet to try and stop that thing. And my guess, it, it is just a guess, but my guess is the combination of lateness plus extra speed plus extra effort probably resulted in shedding uh, more dust off of the carbon discs and pads than we would see had he just braked normally. But yeah, that jumped out to me as well. And we see that from time to time, especially at the end of uh, really long and high speed, uh, or basically for coming into a place like on Shoreline Drive, where they are at super, super big speeds and then braking to come down to a very slow speed and that braking takes place over a longer duration so uh, not totally abnormal to see brake dust come out in those scenarios kevin shindwolf and kevin i apologize if that Shindwolf, i'm always known as the last name assassin so don't hesitate to tell me how to pronounce your last name correctly it says marshall uh, when we are speaking about honda versus chevy how different are those engines really are there differences in design and build of the two engines? Also, have you noticed a difference in the sound between the two? It seems as though they have a different sound when idling, at least. That's what I've noticed when I've been at races. They are completely different. Uh, they do all kinds of things differently to the point to where you could not, say, take the heads off of one and bolt them onto the other. Uh, you There's all kinds of things you couldn't do, but yes while they are built to the same fairly restrictive 2.2 liter twin turbo formula along the way there are there's at least a thousand decisions on how to design where to put something how much of something goes through this orifice where that orifice sits uh how it's cooled how it's everything so how turbochargers are fed how boost pressure from those turbos make their way into the plenum The shape of the paletum, I mean there's everything that you can imagine is custom to how Chevy slash ilmore chooses to do things and how Honda slash Honda Performance Development chooses to do things with theirs. So uh yeah, totally different. They look, you know, sitting next to one another, they would look very similar, but yes, indeed they are these are very, very different things. In terms of sounds, it's a great point you raise, Kevin there was a time up until, I don't know, maybe two years ago, I would say. I'm trying to think if there were any instances last year, but definitely through 2017, I seem to recall that on track, I could spot uh, a Chevy versus a Honda if my eyes were closed, back was turned, etc. Certainly not as easy today, for sure. The idling part you've mentioned, yeah. Uh, Honda was the first to go to the off-cylinder warm-up method kind of sounded like a, a really angry lawnmower going on that's become commonplace just period so you're going to hear that up and down pit lane no matter what team but yeah on track i'm going to pay attention to that more coming up the grand prix of indy and see if i can really spot a difference between the two like i was once able to but not so much anymore daniel Kincaid, you say can you compare the budgets Required for a one-off entry at the 500 and a one-off at the 24 hours of Le Mans. A little bit of a hard thing to answer here, Daniel, knowing that you have four classes of cars at Le Mans. You have both GTE from a Pro-Am, GTE from a full factory GT standpoint. You have LMP2, which is Pro-Am. Then you've got LMP1, which could be a hybrid, uh super factory craziness, or it could be the privateer non-hybrid. I think if we're just comparing, actually, I'm not even sure how to compare. I'd say for the Indy 500, if we're talking the budget required, what it costs each team varies drastically. Uh, and that's not just because of the amount of personnel they use and a whole bunch of variables. For those that are selling rides for one-offs at Indy, each team builds in a different profit margin. Some try and use it to put a lot of money in their pocket. Others maybe run a little bit closer to break even in the interest of putting a uh, maybe a better driver in the car who isn't loaded with money. If we're talking just general numbers that I've heard, um, you know, I've heard that there are some teams that could, could. Uh, try and do something in the roughly $400,000 range. Five hundred's kind of a general number that you'll hear a lot of folks throw around. 6 to 7 is also, those are numbers that I've heard. 750 seems to be a number I'm hearing more of. And, you know, again, if someone can get that good on them, I would say the better teams that offer a seat are certainly the ones who are often commanding more. I've also heard of some who don't have a necessarily long or great track record at Indy asking that same big 700 to 750 amount. So it really varies on what the team thinks of themselves, if they think they can get it, uh, if they're staring at a possibility of, okay, maybe we're not able to put a real monster in the car who can help us overall, uh, and we might do that on a slight budget production for them so you know maybe we just limit ourselves to someone that can truly help offset some costs and maybe help fill in some budget requirements on our full-time cars so i'd say five to five hundred to seven fifty is more normal on the Le Mans side daniel i'd say it's a little bit of a generic number but uh, we've known that going over and competing bringing your gt car over to compete at Lamont even maybe your LMP2, you know, you're looking at a million-ish, one and a half million, depending on, again, whether you're pro-am or full pro. There are some other options. One of the more common things that, and I guess I'm speaking from an American team standpoint of, hey, we have an LMP2 car, but do we go through the expense of shipping it and just all of those hassles? And we also need it back to go racing shortly after Le Mans. Do we go through that, or do we just try and lease a car? Uh, Lease the same model from that manufacturer just for the race. Uh, Then you have some other options of, hey, you know, do I spend the money to fly over my entire team and all these things, or is there a team in France or somewhere there thereabouts? We can contract that not only has a car, but we can also effectively hire their team. And we will, you know, probably bring some engineers. We'll bring some staff, but it's very much of a... You know where some at the uh, indy 500 rent a ride kind of a rent a team <laughs> and plop in your drivers bring a little bit of your maybe your management or engineering but just avoid having to break down and pack everything ship it uh you know ship it and get it all back hope everything shows up clear customs blah 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 that's becoming more of a popular option too so anyways uh yeah in theory somewhere between half of what it might cost to run Le Mans to do Indy 500 in something truly competitive. Getting down to our final questions here, we will kick off with our pal Lance Snyder. It says MP, any upside to reinstituting guaranteed entries at Indy with the upward trajectory of the series and the negative connotations of the previous slot reserving? I can't see how IndyCar would benefit, but maybe I could. Well, no, I can't, Lance. What really, really stood out to me, uh, I think Jim Iello might have been the one to write it. Uh, updating that Chip Ganassi has now joined Roger Penske in the uh, conviction that full time entrants should, full time IndyCar entrants should receive guaranteed slots for the Indy Five Hundred. My takeaway, Lance, is man, talk about how time and generation really plays out as a social experiment. And I know that there are plenty of others who said, hey, wait a minute, weren't Penske and Ganassi, two of the loudest voices, going against the split, against the IRL, and just absolutely saying the 25 and 8 rule, which guaranteed 25 entries for full-time IRL cars. Aren't these the same folks who said that this was just the devil incarnate contained within that mindset? they're guaranteeing entries for indie. it should be based on merit and merit alone and if you can't cut it yada 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 fast forward a couple decades and now we have hey you know it wouldn't be a bad thing if you guaranteed entries yes i think it's ridiculous and i realize that i don't own cars i don't own teams so it might be easier for me to say that since i don't have any uh, financial skin in the game would just say that again it's amazing to me how we moved down the road a couple decades, go from a time when everything was custom, you could make all kinds of choices, which chassis, which tire, which engine, which everything, you could develop your own wings, you could develop, just go nuts. During this era where individuality was just seen as a birthright, those who are accustomed to it, like Roger and like Chip in the Kart IndyCar series, Absolutely destroyed the IRL in print uh, for saying, "Hey, this is participation trophies. Everybody gets a trophy. Really, if you just turn up and commit to the Indy Racing League full time, you you therefore are automatically given an entry to the Indy 500." Now, decades later, with cars that you can do by comparison almost nothing to, and where budgets are certainly tight for everybody. Those folks have changed their opinion and believe that, Hey, if I have invested in the series, if I am investing in a full season, I should get something for that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that anything I do should receive automatic consideration. I believe that every day when I wake up and do work, that the work must stand on the merit and value. And if it doesn't have value, it is pushed back. Hey, Hey, do that better. Try again. Uh, give it another go. No, uh, this does not meet the minimum criteria. Uh, it just seems crazy to me uh, to think of the two folks who've really stood for uh, excellence at the speedway and individuality and finding the best, pushing the hardest, would actually come out and say, hey, no, 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 we want freebies. Give us freebies. Yeah, uh, I just think it's a cultural thing, honestly, Lance. I think over time uh that sense of individuality has just gone uh with the you know everything being customizable to everything being spec, and so I think we're just seeing the knock on effects of that where two paragons of individuality are effectively saying yeah we're we're no longer really considering that something of value and something to hold on to uh, I don't like it. I can't criticize them because, again, they own teams, they show up, they spend money. But I can just say in terms of a mindset in general, it's not the Indy 500 to me. Uh, Let's go to Don Davis, who says, Marshall, the next engine formula. Couldn't OEMs develop a pure internal combustion engine, then use, say, a 75-kilowatt 100-horsepower motor um, just for push-to-pass? There could be a turbo-based recharge or a brake harvest system. Would that satisfy both the electrification folks and the hardcore old farts? I would say I love, absolutely love the place where you're headed here, Don. I think, think, I don't know, but I think this might, you might be predicting the future a little bit here and predicting it accurately. Um, This is the kind of thing I know I have been preaching privately I think we're going to get somewhere like this in the coming years. I can't say when, I don't know if it would be part of the new engine and chassis formula or would come after, but without beating the same old horse week after week, I'm no fan of hybrids. I'm no fan of electrification, but that is where the auto industry is today. That is where it is continuing to move closer to and more towards and, I'm not looking at it from a, what I like and what I want in IndyCar racing. I'm looking at if IndyCar does not embrace this in some way, it is just telling the auto industry it is not relevant. So yeah, something small, you know, that hundred horsepower you're talking about, that's the same thing I've been kind of sort of preaching, uh, full hardcore internal combustion engine and give a little bit, some sort of. Nominal hybridization so that the manufacturers can promote that. IndyCar can promote that, but not something like we had in the WCP1 cars that had five, six, seven hundred electric horsepower to deploy. Uh, let's go to Don Davis again, who says, Hey, willpower and that so called overboost thing that he had in the hairpin that slowed him down. It's a made up thing, right? I ain't never heard of it. Um, it's a real thing, uh, and it often happens either in that hairpin. Or slow corners like that, where you get the wheels spun up and there's a boost spike, which gives more power, and the system recognizes it and says, Okay, we're going to kind of knock you back a little bit, compensate for that benefit that you had. I know you said you ain't never heard of it, Don, but now you have. All right, we're getting down to our last two questions. Joel Swame, who, who uses the, the uh, Twitter name AJ Floyd Racing Hater, uh, says marshall is there an IndyCar licensing system like a super license or was that talked about now nah, they just said they wanted to come up with some guidelines and something that come up that was a little more stringent than honestly it was just more of a feel thing uh no real guidelines but actual okay we're going to try and structure something that uh, kind of sort of tells somebody hey you need to do a little bit more of this if you really want to be considered or not so I'm told that they do use this structure that they came up with, the guidelines, as they refer to them uh, with a couple of drivers that have come in. That's about all that I can say about that. Final question goes to Sean, who says, how real is the Rossi-Dopensky rumor? Does Andretti have the money to keep up in a bidding war? Also, what would happen to Napa? Would they stay with Andretti, follow Rossi-Dopensky, or leave IndyCar? All kinds of great questions there, Sean. wrote about that in my post Long Beach column, it is very real. Um, was hearing that rumor a lot all weekend long. it would be interesting, and I don't mean for that to be kind of a middle-of-the-road cop-out answer, but I can't say which direction he's going to lean. Uh, the Andretti side, I mean, look, the guy's second in the points right now, chasing Joseph Newgarden. Uh, I think he has a pretty phenomenal setup at Andretti. He has a really loyal sponsor in Napa. He has some good stuff going for him. I can't think of any reason to leave other than Roger Penske is interested in having him. And while I do believe that Andretti uh, and who knows NAP or other sponsors could be there behind him for years and years to come. I at least look at team Penske. And my initial response, Sean, is if he were to go there, a, they'd love him. He they already do from what he does for them in sports cars. He's perfect for them. He is absolutely, as I wrote, it's like he was made in a Penske laboratory. Everything about the guy is 100% Penske perfect. My guess is if he were to go drive for Roger, <clears throat> he would have a job for life as long as he wants. As long as Team Penske is in existence, that guy has a job. Indy cars, sports cars, you name it. Not seeing Andretti Autosport is at risk of going away. I'm not, none of those things, just... You know, Penske is celebrating their 50th anniversary at the Indy 500. Um, There's real staying power there. I know that if I'm Rossi and I'm wanting to, again, effectively guarantee that I've got a job more or less for life, man, th- that kind of stability and consistency, that is something that currently only Roger can claim in IndyCar. And Dreddy's Autosport's been around for a good long time. 2003, I believe, was the, the launch. So. You know, they've been around 15, 16 years, but again, there's just something about Penske. The only place that really good drivers leave to go to that we've seen in IndyCar over the years consistently is Penske. As for what would happen with Napa, you know, their contract I'm sure is with the team. Um, Maybe they have a personal services thing with Alexander that might be independent. I don't know, but uh, that to me is some of the minutiae. I would hope Napa, seeing what they can do with Andretti, with a really good driver, if Alex chose to leave, I would hope Napa would stay with Michael uh, and maybe they place a Colton Herta or similar in that car. Uh, What I... Drivers moving from team to team, not a big surprise. The thing I hate to see is when a driver goes and that sponsor bails and it really heavily disadvantages the team that they left. So if it's just a driver swap, but not a sponsor swap as well. I'm okay with it. It always, you know, these things pretty much always happen. Would not be a major shock or surprise. All right. I am a nasally head congested Marshall Pruitt. Uh, Thank you for tuning in this week. And thanks to Graham. Thanks to Ricky for calling in. Uh, And also thank you to Cooper tires and the justice brothers here on the Marshall Pruitt podcast and our week in IndyCar show.